picking up the story in verse 15 of Acts chapter 2, we're told, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, that is the crowd, saying, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For those people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I remember, I kid you not, hearing someone back in my college days using verse 15 as a biblical warrant for drunkenness, as long as it's not too early in the morning when you get your start. As long as you're not tailgating at 9 a.m., that's what the human heart does, right? Verse 16, but Peter goes on to say, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That here, Peter essentially begins preaching to the crowd and he does what any good preacher would do. He looks to the scriptures in, in order to understand the present situation. He looks to the scriptures so that he might apply them to the present and prepare people for the future. Furthermore, it's not just some random grab at a Bible verse. He's not coffee cupping his way through this moment. He's not bumper stickering his way through this moment. Peter knows that as part of the celebration of Pentecost, that the people in his very audience would be reading the book of Joel in this moment. And so he basically tells them that what they're witnessing is the very thing that Joel prophesied would happen. It's kind of crazy. I had an epiphany this morning that what you're actually engaging in this morning is a sermon about a sermon about a sermon, that it's my sermon about Peter's sermon, which is a sermon about Joel's sermon. And so it's like weird inception-like stuff going on this morning. So hopefully you'll track with where you are in the dream. Essentially, Peter says, this is that. This that you're, you're witnessing, that you're seeing, is that which Joel prophesied would take place long ago. The last days, verse 17, inaugurated at Pentecost, the dawn of the age of the Spirit. In another place, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter talks about how the prophets who spoke of God's grace coming, that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That now that Jesus has come, there's no further need to search or inquire. We know the person is Jesus, the time is now. That the last days began with Jesus' appearance on earth, and those last days will be consummated when he returns to set all things right. In other words, you and I, we live in the last days. We live in between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. The age of the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, verse 17. Sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. It's not just certain leaders like Moses and David. Rather, the power of the Spirit for ministry and servant service is poured out on all kinds of people. It's what the crowd is seeing now with their very own eyes in this moment. An outpouring of the Spirit for the proclamation of the gospel. Knowing that, verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter goes on to make clear who this Lord actually is. Verse 22, he says, 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That here Peter begins to make crystal clear that this outpouring of the Spirit is inextricably linked to the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is not just some sort of mysticism that's happening here. He's declaring, Peter is in this moment, that this outpouring of the Spirit of God was part of the plan of God all along. And he goes on to say that this plan of God not only has to do with the Spirit of God, but also the Son of God. You tracking with me? He tells of the incarnation of Jesus. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, the God of the universe, stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully divine, born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of our world as we know it. Peter tells of the ministry and miracles of Jesus. Again, verse 22, the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. The power of God on display in incredible ways. Story after story of Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. Peter tells of the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we encounter the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Why incorporate that in the midst of your first sermon? Might seem kind of strange, right? Well, many expected the Messiah to come and overthrow Roman rule and oppression, mighty and victorious. Meanwhile, Jesus has just died a shameful criminal's death. How can he possibly be the Messiah? What Peter's doing is he's showing the crowd that Jesus is not just some sad sob story. He laid down his life in faithful commitment to the sovereign, eternal plan of God. His death was no accident. We've talked about this verse before, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where the apostle John says, All who dwell on earth will worship it, namely the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Translation, Before there was any sin to die for, God planned that his son would die for sinners like you and me. The Apostle John is telling us that there was a book that existed before the foundation of the world. Before any of this cosmic grandeur, I'm not talking about this auditorium, but all of the cosmic stage lighting hanging up in the sky when you leave this place. Before uh, all of the intricate designs of creation were made, there was a book. And that book was known as the book of life of the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, that was slain. That before time began, the death of God the Son was the plan. Once the clock of human history started ticking, everything was looking forward to that moment, which is why the entire Old Testament foreshadows Jesus, including the book of Joel. That's why since the death of Jesus, everything has looked back to that moment in history, which is exactly what Peter is doing, by the way, in this very moment. He's preaching the crucified Christ. It was God's sovereign plan from before the foundation of the world, yet there's this element of human responsibility. This Jesus, Peter says in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You, Jews in the crowd, crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, Gentile officials and soldiers, Jew and Gentile alike, responsible for the slaying of the Son of God, the Lamb of God. 
Peter tells of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love the language F.F. Bruce uses in his commentary on Acts. He says, It was not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. If his suffering and death were ordained, he says, by the determinate counsel of God, so were his resurrection and glory. That Jesus burst forth from the grave in triumph. We talk about it all the time, slaying the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. That he's alive. That the risen, death-conquering, sin-conquering, Satan-conquering King Jesus, he's the reason we have any hope of celebrating this morning. If he hasn't risen from death, what we're doing is absurd. We're singing songs to a dead man at that point. You realize that's a terrible Sunday hobby, right? Peter goes on to make his case that Jesus is indeed alive, and he does so by again going to the Old Testament, showing the crowd how Jesus is the promised one of Psalm chapter, or Psalm 16, I should say. It says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. In Psalm 16, David speaks of an incorruptible body, a a conquering of the grave. This psalm demands far more than a human fulfillment. David wasn't ultimately talking about himself. Peter tells us that in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Peter says, verse 29, that it's really easy to verify that David wasn't ultimately writing about himself. Peter's listeners could have walked to David's tomb without so much as breaking a sweat. They could have seen his decayed body. Peter's essentially saying, why don't you go to the tombs of David and Jesus, and you tell me? Which is incredibly encouraging and comforting to know that Christianity is founded on historical events, events that the pioneers of the New Testament church were not afraid to have verified, events that they had seen with their very own eyes. Verse 32, David was speaking about the resurrection of Jesus who would, verse 28, establish a path of life that would lead to eternal gladness in the presence of God. Peter goes on to say in verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here Peter quotes a second psalm, Psalm 110, very famous psalm. See it a lot in the New Testament. Jesus actually uses this very same psalm in Matthew 22 to argue that he is, in fact, the fulfillment of it, that he's the second Lord referenced here. Matthew 22, picking up in verse 41, says, Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here's the quoting of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You can just picture the Pharisees, drat, foiled again, like, I hate brain teasers with Jesus. He always wins. He always does win, by the way. For the great King David to call uh, someone in his lineage his Lord implies something significant. We're not just talking about some really great human king here. We're talking about deity. Jesus says, that's me. I'm not just the son of David. I'm the son of God. Here in Acts chapter 2, Peter uses that very same psalm that Jesus does, and he does so to argue the same thing about Jesus that Jesus argues about himself, namely that Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is not dead and buried. David is. Jesus is alive and well. He's exalted at the right hand of God as the perfect high priest and king. As the apostle Paul says in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That he's at the right hand of God, a declaration of his kingship, and he intercedes for his people, a declaration of his priesthood. He's the perfect priest-king combo. Peter closes out his sermon in verse 36 saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Peter declares Jesus to be the risen, exalted Lord, the Greek word kurios, master, and also the risen Christ, Christos, Messiah, anointed one. That the one who has poured out his spirit in this incredibly significant moment in redemptive history is Jesus. And he's poured out his spirit so that the apostles and the church might share in his ministry. No, they're not drunk. You can just imagine Satan anticipating the unfulfilled promise of Joel as Jesus lied dead in the tomb. What a miserable sight it must have been for the devil of hell to see Jesus come forth from the grave triumphant and not only to come forth from the grave triumphant, but to ascend to the right hand of the Almighty and fulfill Joel's very prophecy. Satan got a front row seat to that one. That the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is the confession of the church. How absurd that we would abandon the person and work of Jesus Christ for techniques to try to grow the church that have nothing to do with Jesus. He's the confession of the church. Jesus as Lord and Christ, Master and Messiah, is the confession of the church. Derek Thomas, in his commentary, he says, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost did not take believers beyond Jesus to something else, something mystical. No, the Spirit came to enable them to say three words, Jesus is Lord, which requires a work of the Spirit for us to declare that the person and work of Jesus Christ is our confession. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Spirit of God cannot be divorced from the Son of God, would be one way to say it, which means that something has gone terribly wrong, both in charismatic churches that have abandoned the centrality of the gospel and in gospel-centered churches that are terrified for the Spirit to actually move. That the Spirit is pleased to glorify the Son, and the Son is pleased to pour out the Spirit. And you see both in the book of Acts. Both. 
And so one of my prayers for us as we work through this book of the Bible is may we be both a gospel-centered and spirit-filled church. And by the way, you're the church. Peter brings this mega church-sized crowd face-to-face with the person and work of Jesus Christ and listen to how the people respond. We're told in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who call, whom the, the Lord of our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, we're told, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I never really noticed this until... I was studying for this passage that up to this point in Acts chapter 2, Peter has declared the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, but he's yet to connect the dots to the theological significance of any of it. That up to this point in Acts chapter 2, the crowd could easily respond, yeah, Jesus performed some miracles. We saw it. Yeah, Jesus was crucified on a hill outside the city. We saw that too. Yeah, Jesus came back from the dead. Some of of us even witnessed that. But now, in verse 38, Peter makes it personal. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That Jesus didn't just live a perfect, sinless life. He lived a life that you and I could never live. That Jesus didn't just die on a Roman splintered wooden cross like thousands of others in his day. He died the sinner's death that you and I could uh, deserve to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. He didn't just rise from the grave. He proved through his resurrection that the penalty for your sin was paid in full. He didn't just ascend to the right hand of the Father. He ascended to the the place from which he could ever live and plead for you as your great high priest and advocate. That the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are not just historical, they're deeply theological, and they're deeply personal. Which is why I love the words of the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement. Speaking of the gospel, it says, We believe that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, God's very wisdom. Utter folly to the world, even though it is the power of God to those who are being saved, this good news is Christological, centering on the cross and resurrection. In other words, the gospel is not proclaimed if Christ is not proclaimed, and the authentic Christ has not been proclaimed if his death and resurrection are not central, i.e. the message is Christ died for our sins and was raised. It goes on to say, this good news is also biblical, His death and resurrection are according to the scriptures. This good news is theological and salvific. Christ died for our sins to reconcile us to God. This good news is historical. If the saving events of the gospel did not happen, our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins and we are to be pitied more than all others. That's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. This good news is apostolic. The message was entrusted to and transmitted by the apostles who were witnesses of these saving events, going back to what Peter says in verse 32. And lastly, this good news is intensely personal. Where it is received, believed, and held firmly, individual persons are saved. 
Here we see this massive crowd, 3,000 people, cut to the heart by the power of the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. A new attitude towards sin established. A complete change of mind. Now seeing their sin personally as having brought about the death of Jesus Christ. We sing it all the time around here. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That it wasn't just the Jews who handed Jesus over. It wasn't just the Gentile officials and soldiers who oversaw his execution. It was you. It was me. The question is, have we, like those in the crowd, been cut to the heart? That's a question meant for every one of us in this room this morning. Until we see that our sins cost Jesus his life, we will not truly be cut to the heart. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, very sobering in the American South. He says, quote, there are professing Christians who need Christ. They've heard, but they haven't heard. It is possible to be a respectable, well-taught, moral sinner. That is why the Lord said in the parables of the tares, Uh, not to pull the tares out of the wheat field because the roots are tangled together and we will pull out the wheat too. We cannot tell the difference. Hughes goes on to say, it is possible to have everyone fooled and yet to know nothing of what the 3,000 heard. If you know no emptiness, you will not know the fullness of Christ in your life. If you have never come to the end of yourself and become poor in spirit, you have never been truly open to the fullness of Christ and the true knowledge of him. Do we hear Peter's sermon? If not, Hughes says, the God of grace invites us to come honestly before him who sees all and to allow him to speak to us. How utterly awful it would be to preach Acts chapter two and not present a call to repent and believe to this gathering of people. If you're not a Christian, I invite you right now, just like Peter on the day of Pentecost, to turn to Jesus, bringing nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith to the table. And that includes professing Christians, those who have come in the room this morning, respectable, well-taught, even moral, who have heard but haven't truly heard. Behold the man upon a cross. See that it was your sin that nailed him there. Confess Jesus to be both Savior and King, Christ and Lord. Turn from your sin and embrace Jesus. Step into the baptismal waters as a public declaration of what he's done for you if you haven't. We're told 3,000 people truly heard that day. It wasn't just some religious exercise. And not just any 3,000 people, a crowd of 3,000 predominantly Jewish people repenting receiving Peter's word, i.e. the gospel. Here's a really fascinating thing to think about. Luke is is actually using the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a translation of the Bible known as the Septuagint. Going back to the reference of the book of Joel earlier in Peter's sermon, so I guess we're, we're like in the sermon, within the sermon, within the sermon. We're like level three of inception Uh, If you read the Septuagint translation of that passage in Joel, the very next words following Peter's quote are these. Joel chapter two, verse 32. For it will be in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, remember where Acts chapter two is happening, and in Jerusalem that there will be a remnant, just as the Lord said, and they will be preached the good news, those whom the Lord summons. That 
Peter's use of the prophecy in Joel is perfect, not only because it contains an outpouring of the Spirit as prophesied, which we see in Acts chapter 2, but also because it contains the proclamation of the good news to a restored remnant of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Here in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you have an outpouring of the Spirit and the restoring of a remnant of Israel. 3,000 people entering the Messianic community. John Stott says this. He says, Peter replied that they must repent, completely changing their mind about Jesus and their attitude to him, and be baptized in his name, submitting to the humiliation of baptism, which Jews regarded as necessary for Gentile converts only, and submitting to it in the name of the very person they had previously rejected. This would be a clear public token of their repentance and of their faith in him. In the words of F.F. Bruce, to quote him again, he says, what we have here in Acts chapter two is the believing remnant of the old Israel and the nucleus of the new. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen on the night of his death. John chapter 16, where Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, listen to this, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged that exactly what Jesus said would happen is happening right here in this moment in Acts chapter two, 3,000 people convicted by the Spirit, 3,000 people repenting and believing in Jesus, 3,000 baptisms in his name. It is mind-blowing to think about the, the fact that the church expanded 26 times its size that day. Break out a calculator if you don't believe me. Went from 120 followers of Jesus to 3,120 followers in a moment. Can you imagine that? And not only receiving the forgiveness of sins, notice the summary here at the end of this passage of, of what it means to be a Christian. Christians receive, verse 38, yes, the forgiveness of sins, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. That the forgiveness of sins is something legal that happens outside of us as we're given the perfect righteous record of Jesus Christ and pardoned of our sin record, which Jesus bore on the cross in our place. But we're also given the Gift of the Spirit, something that happens not outside of us, but within us, as we're given new life, new power, and the gift of God himself indwelling us. I think if we thought about that long enough, it'd make our heads spin. Who gets the benefit of enjoying such wondrous gifts? Everyone who checks all the right boxes? Everyone who lives an impressive enough life? Everyone who performs all the right rituals? No. Thanks be to God for verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, and his name is Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And listen, if you believe that already, I hope you're not bored by the message because it's yours to take out and proclaim to the masses. Like the spirit-filled Peter, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. That we're called to proclaim Jesus. We're called to, to declare the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Not full of ourselves, but like Peter, full of Christ, full of Scripture, and full of the Holy Spirit. 
In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a few different ways. Communion tables will be open, kind of veered away from making this clear, so I'll say it explicitly this morning. Those tables are open until the end of this service. Whenever you're ready to come receive of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, you are welcome to come. Uh, We're trying to eliminate or diminish the herd mentality where there's actually space for the spirit to move as we sit with what we we just looked at in terms of God's word and his spirit moving and working within us so that when you're ready, come and and receive of the elements. We'll also worship through... uh, a time of prayer. There'll be people in the back of the room with our prayer team who'll be available to pray with and for you. If you'd like prayer in any regard, come and take advantage of that. Um, And also we'll continue to worship through song as as we sing this glorious gospel together as God's people gather the very one and same gospel that we get to leave this place and take out to people who desperately need Jesus.